0: Many of you may remember uh, the movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. Have you seen that in 1997? It's kind of an older movie now. Uh, Comedy, uh, very funny at parts, but basically it's the story of this lawyer who, uh, for a living, he personally lied a lot, basically didn't know lies from the truth. And so in the opening scenes, one of those, his son was in school. And the teacher was asking, what do your parents do for a living, and where are they? And so it came to his son's turn, grade school, and well, what does your father do? And so he kind of looked and turned his head, and my father's a liar. She said, oh, 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 the teacher's response, a liar? What do you mean a liar? And and he said, well, he goes to court and sees the judge and stuff, and and that's what he does. And she said, "Oh, oh. oh, you mean a lawyer? And then she started laughing. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, He couldn't pronounce the word lawyer. He kind of shrugged his shoulders when she said, oh, he's a lawyer. And then the movie progressed. And, of course, at the end, uh, again, it's old. You've probably, many of you, seen it. Uh, Redemption, repentance comes in in, uh, Jim Carrey's character's life. And and life is new again. And and all these great things start happening for them. Uh, Lies, of course, in the real world are not... Uh, comedy, a uh, very serious thing, especially if we have patterned lying in our lives. One, of course, the most heinous lies given to the German people by Hitler, uh, Nazi regime, about the Jewish people, and of course, uh, the mass killings that took place of those, the German people buying into how the Jews were uh, corrupt and, and um, evil people and how they needed to be eliminated. From the planet. And of course, we we look at that reality of what took place and we see there is a very uh, serious nature when it comes to lying, especially in the spiritual realm. Uh, There are lies that about Christ, about God, about the church, about believers in general are accepted uh, worldwide by those who don't follow Christ. And then there are some lies within the lives of believers that we just randomly accept or normally accept and they become a part of our lives. So today we're going to look at, as we look at this passage, this important uh, passage for us related to this, are are four things. One, um, saying that this actually is not sin. Saying that I personally don't sin. Saying that I'm free to sin. And then saying, well actually it's, it's not my sin at all. And so John in this section of this letter that he wrote addresses each one of those lives specifically in the lives of believers. I believe it's really going to highlight a lot for us this morning but before we read our passage and start working through it let's pray together. Uh, God we thank you that you are beyond able to save us that you actually do and that once we surrender our lives to you we enter an everlasting eternal relationship. Uh, The fact that when we surrender our lives, that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit and that we are yours. And God, along the way, it's possible for all of us at points that we've accepted some of these lies that are found within the lives of believers, the lives of the church. And and so this morning, I pray that as we walk through this passage, that you would help us, that you would illuminate in our personal lives if we actually have indeed believed something that is not truth and God, not only that it would be highlighted, but that we would recognize it, repent of it, turn away from it, and that we would run to you in truth as well. And so we're praying for this passage specifically to speak to our hearts this morning. And we're trusting you for that. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When well, these letters, John is really uh, talking with the church, challenging the church in areas of theology, heart, life in general, as they pursued this relationship with Christ, walking with him, having more and more confidence in Christ, building their faith, striving not to sin, gaining confidence relationally uh, with him, as mentioned before. And so this section of scripture, uh, comparing light and darkness, uh, the difference, of course, that's a a significant contrast, opposites in fact, as he, he references Jesus as Light, and then there are some other pieces that come with that uh, that are going to be helpful to us. Let's let's read this passage where he actually begins talking about that. Beginning in verse five, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the first point, as mentioned before, basically the, what, what John is calling out is saying that sin is not sin. Another way put, stating I have fellowship with God, even though I live a life that's in direct contrast or opposition, or contradicts the truth of what he tells us. Uh, verse 5, again, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Obviously, once again, the contrast, light and darkness. We know that God is good, that darkness is evil. And so the, the two opposites, we know there is no evil that resides in the perfect creator of the universe, God. Absolutely none. So in our lives, when we begin to accept things or allow things to enter into our lives, saying that something at times may even actually be darkness, calling those lies or that, uh, that, um, that, that life of darkness, light, creates a huge problem in our lives. In opposition to, to God's word and to Um, to true fellowship, to true faith, saying that something is black when it is actually white, that it is red when it is actually green, saying that sin is justifiable or okay, saying that something uh, is sin when it is not. For instance, as you know, in our world in the last 20 years, of course, it's been much longer in the going. There are some who say that sexual relationship outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman is okay. It's justifiable. And actually, some would point to Scripture saying that that lifestyle that people choose, either engaging in sexual immorality before marriage or um, changing it with uh, same sex as we've seen that as well, marriage, saying that those things are okay, that they're justifiable, that God actually didn't say that those things are in opposition to him uh, we know, uh, as, far as, as far as the truth goes, those are absolute lies. We know that God clarifies marriage from the beginning of Adam and Eve when he formed man, formed woman, put them together in the context of that relationship. And so saying that that's justifiable or before God that that's okay, uh, the reality, the truth of it is that it is not. Uh, those things, as we've seen throughout Scripture, um, are actually abominations to the Lord now. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 is one of those uh, not obscure sections of Proverbs, but a very clear one, in fact, in relating to what uh, the Lord hates. Here they are. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, pride, in other words. Okay, how many of us have experienced pride in our own lives? Every one of us. Lying tongue. I believe we've all probably said a lie here and there, again, related to this passage. Hands that shed innocent blood. Uh, The one that most speaks out in our world, of course, is abortion. And and babies' lives being taken uh, before they're even uh, conceived or um, some even after the fact. And, of course, we know that New Testament, when Jesus walked through Matthew 5 through 7 in particular, the Beatitudes, he said, if you hate a brother... Or have animosity towards a brother or sister to the point where there's actually hatred in your life it's the same thing as killing. and so verbally, we shed the blood of others when we talk about them in such negative ways and basically destroy them and their character. Some may be truth. Some of those things lies destroying the credibility of a person. obviously shedding innocent blood. In, in these words, the words of Solomon, of course, is related specifically to killing someone who wasn't able to defend themselves or killing someone in general. Innocent blood. And, of course, again, uh, referring to those, uh, I believe, specifically uh, those whose lives are taken before they even have an opportunity to live. Continuing, a heart that devises wicked plans. Has that ever been you? Where you thought of something that you could do to, to hurt another or to do something um, wicked. Wicked. All of us, I believe, regardless of the strength or weakness of that, have done that. Feet that make haste to run to evil. Has there ever been something that's been sin that you haven't waited to jump in and get involved in? All of us as well. A false witness who breathes out lies. We have all lied. And one who sows discord among the brothers. Interesting that he said in that um, six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. And within those, uh, the wide range of things that are included. And of course, uh, the summary of all those things is what? They're sin. All of sin, God hates. Which goes to the heart of what he addresses. In our lives, in your life, the question, where are we abiding? Abiding in the flesh? Abiding in the flesh? In evil areas of opposition to God? Or are we abiding in Christ, resting in him? Where are we abiding? What would our lives characterize? To abide means to remain stable or fixed in a state of love. Of course, we know as followers of Jesus, that state of love is our relationship with God. He, in fact, by definition is love. And so we are called to remain stable in a state of love our love relationship with him, and to continue in that place. It's the hidden heart of a person. A lot of things uh, in our lives people can evidence by the way we speak, we act, Uh, what we do, uh, the way we treat people. They can see the the state of our heart. But there are hidden areas in our lives, uh, maybe besetting sins, maybe something other that uh, are in opposition, direct opposition to what we claim. All of us still, until we see... God face to face one day will wrestle and struggle with sin. We are broken people. As the last song that we sung, poor and needy, all of us without Christ in great need of him. When we find him, we still are in great need of him, transforming our lives. John 15, 7 through 11 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. idea of this lifestyle of living so much in deep relationship with christ abiding in him that as we have a life on this planet as we encounter individuals that that abiding that restedness that settledness in christ should come out and how we speak and what we do dallas willard said regarding personal soul care jesus christ is of course the door the light and the way We are privileged to walk in this profound reality. The living word and the written word occupy our minds. We naturally and supernaturally come to love God more and more because we see clearly and constantly how lovely he is. Worship will become the constant undertone of our lives. Jesus taught us to abide in God's love, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full our joy is full when there is no room for more abiding in god's love provides the unshakable source of joy which in turn the source is peace all is based on the reality of god's grace and goodness if we are abiding if we are striving to walk in christ if we are drawing closer to him if we are truly abiding in him then it will be difficult if not to a degree, impossible for us to call sin, not sin, as defined by God, as defined by his word. Now he moves to the second issue, basically saying that I don't sin. In other words, personally stating, I have fellowship with God because I've not done anything to do real harm to the relationship I have with Christ, saying that I don't sin. I've reached such a point in my life that that just isn't even in the equation. Now, Every follower of Jesus that I've met that I know would not ever make that claim. Saying that we just don't sin, we just don't wrestle anymore, that that we're just perfect human beings walking through. In fact, I would say all of us, within a 15 to 30 minute period, struggle. Whether it's a thought or an action or an attitude, whatever it is, we still wrestle with sin. And we will until we see Christ face to face one day. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness and we lie and do not practice the truth. So there's this, once again, contrast of a statement that I fellowship with Christ and yet I walk in darkness. Now does that mean, again, and we've already defined it out and we've already stated it, that we're never going to sin, that we're never going to wrestle again? Absolutely not. In fact, Paul, when he was addressing different churches and different sections of Scripture, said that uh, those things that I don't want to do, I do. What I do, I don't want to do. Even arguably the greatest Christian that ever walked the planet struggled with this battle between The flesh, sin, the enemy, the spirit, all that was a part of it absolutely yielded in his life to the point of all the persecution that he faced. If he, arguably once again in that position, struggled that much, then why too would we not? We will. We will deal with that. But we can never reach the point until we see Christ face to face, until we enter heaven, until that moment of judgment happens for us. And he sees the blood of Christ covering our sin and we enter into heaven Where sin is not present, never will be, until that moment we will not be perfected. So we can't say that I don't sin, that I I, I don't have sin in my life. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so once again, that's that uh, reimagining or redefining in our culture exactly what sin is. We are not called to redefine it because sin is clear as far as what the word tells us. It's anything that's against God, against his character, against his personhood, against the word. 1 John 1.9, one of my favorite verses of all time. If we confess, if we say with our mouth, if we confess with our mouth, not just that Jesus is Lord, but if we, if we confess our sin, our heinousness before him. If we confess our sin, he is faithful, and he is just, and he will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm one o three twelve. As far as the east is from the west, so far is your sin removed from you. This work of Christ on the cross for us, redeeming us, restoring us, giving us life and relationship is, is absolutely key in our lives as we strive for these lives of character. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us. And not just to forgive us, but he does what? He purifies us uh, from all of our sin through what? The blood of Christ, his sacrifice on the cross for us. So when we stand before God one day, and as we stand before God on this planet, we still have breath in our lungs. What he sees in us is either that the blood of Christ covers our sin in our lives, or it doesn't. If we are Covered by the blood of Christ because we've surrendered our lives to Him, then that is again how He sees us. Forgiven. But that forgiveness is a, a challenge at times for us, isn't it? Uh, we can say and accept the fact that God forgives us, but how often do we carry that sin in our own lives, allowing the enemy and the spirit of condemnation to so fill our lives that we're crippled to the point of not even being able to function? Where we are, are in, in statement by word, God, thank you for forgiving me. I believe the, the, the proof and the truth of that, but I can't forgive myself for what I've done. And so we carry this uh, sin, past, current, idea of future sin, we carry this with us to the point of thinking that we can't even be solid instruments for him or for the gospel. So we shrink back, and we live lives of discouragement, and, and we miss the greater value the greater point of what Christ has for us, who he sees us as, as his. And in so doing, even though we state with our mouths that God forgives us, if we fail to forgive ourselves of the things that we've done, then in some respect, we are living a lie, not the truth. The truth of it is, if God, the creator, the founder of the universe... The lover of our souls can forgive us. Then we in turn, living that truth, need to forgive ourselves. Remembering as far as the east is from the west, so far sin is removed from us. Now that doesn't mean that we're not going to have consequences for our sin. It's a natural part of life. Now it also doesn't mean that God will not at times remove those consequences of our sin. Especially relating to restoring us with people. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar... And his word is not in us. Once again, saying I don't sin is a a rarity for followers of Jesus because of understanding the grace at least those with whom I run circles with. The first issue John has dealt with is claiming fellowship with God while living a sinful life. The second is claiming fellowship with God because we, in fact, are not sinners. Even though we are born into sin, and therefore we don't need Jesus. The next issue is a kind of unholy marriage between those two, saying I'm free to sin. There are some that, once again, as mentioned earlier, say they have a license to sin or this ability to go out and live however they want and it doesn't matter, being sloppy uh, in morality, lifestyle, and what, what's accepted. But we see in verse 1, at least the first half of it, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So there's this, once again, contrast of light and darkness, uh, this... this um, this challenge of John for the people that he was writing to and to us today uh, to say that, that we are not, in fact, free to sin, to accept things in our lives that are in contrast to God. That's actually in opposition for what he wants for us in our lives. Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so there was this idea in Romans When Paul penned that uh, to the people that he was writing to, that people said, well, if I sin, God's grace and mercy will be more profound. People will see it more readily. So I'm going to sin as much as possible so they can see the grace of God in my life. So we see that as an example and we think, well, that's ridiculous. Why would somebody want to do that to try to highlight the goodness of God instead of walking with him? And allowing the goodness of God and the mercy and grace he gives us to be displayed in and through us as we strive to be closer in relationship with him and the holiness of God transforming us from the inside out. It's not just transactional, this relationship we have with Christ. It's transformational. So our lives should be characteristic of that as we yield more and more to him. So John is reminding us once again that forgiveness is possible through the blood of Jesus for us. And then we're never to make light of sin or call it what it's not. He's saying that if we don't grieve over our sin, then we need to question relationally where we are with the Father. The Holy Spirit does that in our lives, He convicts us of sin. And so when we say a bad word about someone or to someone, when we're driving down the highway, and I'm sure you've never had this thought or action, flip somebody off because they've cut you off, or say something loud that you probably shouldn't have said, we should be grieved by that. At some point in the process, if we're being close to the Lord, there should be something in us, the Holy Spirit, showing us, you just did wrong, that was sin, and you need to repent, and you need to ask for forgiveness. If we're missing that, that grieving over, realizing that our sin took Christ. On the cross that he in that act in that life gift took sin upon himself past present future for all including us individually that our sin caused that because of our need for forgiveness and if that grief is not there if that's not a regular part that confession part of our walks with the lord and that's missing that we need to evaluate okay exactly where am i with the lord the closer we draw to him Several things happen, a couple of those. One, we realize how undeserving we are. That it is isn't a tremendous gift. And also how gross or disgusting our sin is before him. Wanting us to please our Father. So in the midst of that, not wanting to continue in that, you get the point. Three issues then are clear so far. Claiming fellowship with God by redefining sin is not possible claiming fellowship with God by claiming that we aren't really sinners is not possible and claiming fellowship with God by trivializing or making light of our sin is also not possible then we come to the fourth one basically saying it is not my sin I have no fellowship with God and I can't because my sin is too great look at 1b through 2 but if anyone does sin we have an advocate one who lobbies for us. Interesting, um, as a lawyer would lobby for the individuals they're representing, Christ lobbying for us, advocating with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation is one of those... uh, large terms use new testament which means to appease or to satisfy so christ's work on the cross appeased the wrath of god for sin satisfied that what should be penalty for us christ for us taking our sin upon himself giving us opportunity for relationship with christ he was able to appease that wrath of god by giving himself in our place and so there is one then beyond uh, this forgiveness where sin cannot stand against the blood of Jesus because it was covered by the blood of Jesus if we surrender our lives to him. So, so understanding that and knowing that, again, going back to what we mentioned about Paul just a moment ago and continuing along those lines, saying that, well, I appreciate the fact that Christ came and made the sacrifice for us. But there's no way he could forgive me. Have you ever talked with someone who's lost They're so buried in their lostness that when you approach the subject, the person of Christ, with them, they basically look back at you and say, well, he could never forgive me. He could never do that in my life. I'm I'm, I'm too far gone. Have you ever met a believer? There was a point in my life when I surrendered and I went to church as a kid. This is pretty common. Even at church camp, I surrender my life to Jesus or something happened in the context of that. And, but, you know, gosh, I haven't thought about God or had contact with him for years. And honestly, the way I've lived my life, there is no way in the world that he could love me, forgive me, accept me because of what I've done. Again, going back to one of the ones former, but this is actually an extension of the previous points living this life of hopelessness. And you have met followers of Jesus who genuinely encountered Christ when they were younger, who genuinely were saved, who have walked away, spent time separated from, been engrossed in sin, some for days, some weeks, months, some for years. And they're at this point of hopelessness, really desperation. So in the process of those conversations, how then do we bridge with them? Well, there really is hope for you. Well, one, obviously it's the guidance of the Holy Spirit. If you ever encounter someone or the next time you encounter someone like that and they start to share this story with you, what should be our immediate response? To pray for that individual right there and then. God, I pray that you would speak into their life. God, give me the words. I have no idea what to say. Has that ever happened to you? Where you're sitting there talking with someone and you're like, I've never talked about this. I've never approached it. I have no idea what to do or say in this moment. Pray for the Holy Spirit's help. It's amazing in the midst of that, in those moments, how God will recall to your mind Scripture. Christ-likeness. The words that you never thought would come out of your mouth. To speak life and hope and encouragement to that individual. Immediately you pray. And then you bridge in. Well, if there's no hope for you, then there's no hope for me either. So let's just really abandon the whole thing and run off and just live our lives. Of course, you're not going to say that. But you are going to commensurate with them and share from the depth of my life. I get it. But that's where the grace and mercy of God has stepped into me. And here's how he changed me. Gosh, here's how I wrestled with sin last week. And according to the Bible, he forgives me so I can forgive myself. So if he can forgive me of that, he can forgive you too. And you know what? And this isn't just some corny phrase. It's something that we need to repeatedly tell people. He has a great plan for your life in spite of what's taken place. He loves you. He created you. He wants a relationship with you. And he's got better in store for your life than you can even think or imagine. There is hope for you. So we communicate that in the way we speak. Once again, giving life. That's how we respond. And then we ask the question, what's what's keeping you from him, really? In this moment, would you, once again, allow the freshness of God to speak into your life and for him to restore and redeem and set you on a new path? I've had those conversations with people. That is speaking life into others. People are in desperate need of that. The section we looked at today, we address those things that can threaten to to break the connection, the abiding peace, these things that we accept in our lives. Number one, this isn't sin. Number two, I don't sin. Number three, I'm free to sin. Number four, I'm hopeless, so what's the point? When we surrender our lives to Christ death to self, life in Christ, placing him as king. And as a result, this life, understanding that it will not be easy because putting ourselves to death and being alive in Christ is harder than just existing and living and going. While it's easy to believe these lies as followers, we must stop doing that. So in your life, if you are a follower of Christ, have you accepted some of those lies? If so, here's your action step for the day. Call them out as they are to the Lord. I've accepted this lie in my life, whatever part, whatever portion it is, and God, I realize that it doesn't match up with the truth that you tell me. That I'm not to accept sin, that I'm not to call darkness light. Would you please forgive me? I repent of that. I turn back into relationship with you. And allow him to do that restorative work. If you're in the room and you have been in a position of, as a follower of Jesus, what's the point? I can never measure up. I can never be in this position with Christ that even though his Bible says that I can, I can never be in this spot with him. That I see other people living or related to whatever. Then call that out as it is. That is a spirit of condemnation. That is the enemy and your flesh telling you and seeding into your life lies, you call it what it is. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the enemy. And in the power of you, Jesus, I will never accept that lie in my life again because your word tells me that you want to transform my life and that you're for me and that you love me and that I'm yours. And then each time that revisits you because trust me, as we go through the process of repentance What does the enemy want to do? He wants to defeat us again because he loves us living in that place. Every time he brings that back to your mind and heart, call it out once again and say, God's forgiven me of that. He's restored me of that. That's a lie, and I'm not accepting that, and I'm not living in that place anymore. And then you carry it. Satan cannot stand in the presence of Jesus. He too falls on his face. Because he knows who is creator, king, God of the universe. And so in that, you call it out. Out loud. Not necessarily screaming it. I mean, you can. Satan, in the name of Jesus, you leave. By the power of his blood, you leave. Because you have no victory in my life. And you claim the light. When his name is spoken in that way, he has to flee he has to leave and if that takes a thousand times a day of you saying the same thing out loud because you feel like he's coming under you're under attack and he's coming after you you do it don't just keep it in your mind and heart because satan cannot read our minds but he can hear our words and so you speak that and you begin to live a life of victory instead of defeat god has better for you The enemy cannot win. Ultimately, we follow the one who has won and who will win. Let's remember our place. Let's remember the God we follow. And let's remember we too can have victory. Let's pray.